0: 53rd chapter of Isaiah. Just want to read four verses from this chapter. Verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We're the ones that went astray. We're the ones that had been going our own way, and yet God laid on His Son our sin. He got whipped. When you were a kid, did you ever get whipped for something your brother did? Jesus did that. He took a beating, a punishment, a death, a torture that was not His to take, that the vilest of criminals is worthy of receiving. He received it between two vile criminals. And God allowed that act to become a substitutionary provision for us who have sinned, we've all sinned, so that we could be freed from the need to be punished. He was punished for me. Are you glad about it? Verse 8, he was taken from prison and judgment. The night he was betrayed, they imprisoned him, and they had I think three kangaroo court sessions threw together lying witnesses to seek to convict him and they couldn't do it. He wound up being crucified due to political pressure on Pilate. The next line says, and who will declare his generation? He died without having children. And in centuries to come, he would not be remembered. You see in ancient cultures, Who you came from and who came after you was very important. If you didn't have children, it was a sad thing because your name would die. In our culture, we don't understand that. We are so individualistic, we do not even know the full name of our great-grandparents. I know the full name of my great-grandfather because I asked my dad, but I don't know the full name of my great-grandmother. i got to call him today and ask him. That means... The children of your grandchildren may not even know who you are. You're going to go to dust, and your descendants won't even remember you. That's our culture, but an ancient culture it wasn't that way. Those parts of the Bible that we think are boring, and Shechem begot Malechem, and Malechem begot Selechem, and we can't pronounce those names. Just these long—we call them genealogies—but that was someone's name. And you can read of Jesus' genealogy in the Gospels from Adam to him and from Abraham to him. But from him forward, there is no more listing because he had no natural children. This was a sad thing. He was killed before he could have children, so he wouldn't be remembered. And he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. Verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul or his life an offering for sin. And then here's the promise. He shall see his seed. Meaning he's going to have kids. How's this going to happen? He shall prolong his days. The same God that allowed him to be stricken and killed is the same God that raised him from the dead. So that he could have seed. Through what he did for us, we can be born again. He became our brother, and he became the way to the Father through what he did. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. By his experience, he's going to justify many. And these many are what we call his seed. For he shall bear or carry their iniquities. He gives us his righteousness, and we give him our sin. That's a pretty rough trade, isn't it? He got ripped off, but no, we are his reward, because as we're born again, he sets us on a path of having our minds renewed. And thank God we're not who we were, and we're not who we're going to be. But when we see him, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And so because of what he did for us, giving up the right to have children, giving up his life, taking our shame upon himself when we were worthy of death. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's good news for us. Because he has bore our sin and shame, Jesus takes away all sin and shame. Not because shameful things are not shameful, but because he took all our shame upon himself by receiving all the punishments that we deserve. Welcome to the real shame-free zone. The world does not know what to do with shame. Counselors will help you get rid of shame, deal with your shame problem by finding reasons for being shameful to blame it on. And other people in the world will pile more shame on you. If you watch some of these daily TV shows where a crowd just piles shame on the person that's not being responsible with their life and judging them, and then, and then they want to preach against judging, and yet they're doing it on their very show. And then there's the sharing of shame. That's why some country songs that shouldn't even be aired are so popular because I'm not the only one who has a life that's a mess, you know, kind of like Misery Loves Company. And so I feel better about my shame by listening to a song about someone else's. It's pretty sad and others in the world are attempting to justify their shameful ways that's what the whole gay marriage thing is about trying to get rid of their shame by saying it's not shameful and look we've got a marriage license to prove it that's what it's about but i'm telling you it's not going to work we can do all that we can to remedy shame the only thing that can take it away is the blood of jesus the religions of the world don't know what to do with shame. Hinduism has come up with a concept called karma, which is an expansion or a taking to the extreme the truth to the point that is error, that we reap what we sow. So that when you see someone suffering, you don't have to help them because it's their karma. They must have done something evil in a previous life. So leaving people in their shame and even piling shame on them. And Islam, oh man, look at what they do with shame. You shame your family, your family kills you. Getting rid of the shame. But Jesus Christ carried our shame. And by receiving saving faith, a miracle takes place in your heart where you're not just trying to dodge your responsibility for the wrong that you've done, but you really own up to it and receive the forgiveness that only he can give because of his atoning work on the cross. Welcome to the real shame-free zone because of what Christ has done. In Genesis chapter 3, we read it last week, is a story of the initial fall of man. When the first man and the first woman sinned, this became the result. Their sin caused shame. They immediately knew they were naked. And they tried to hide themselves from the presence of God. They tried to cover themselves with their efforts, their fig leaf aprons. And when God confronted them, they blamed others. Eve, the woman, blamed the devil, and the man blamed the woman and indirectly blamed God. The woman you gave me, things were all right till she came along. And we still do this today. Some people beat their spouse and justify it because he or she, happens to men too, Made me mad. So they had it coming. That's blaming rather than becoming responsible. Labeling others. Adam named his wife, who was Isha. He was Ish. Genesis chapter 5, the first couple of verses says, When God made them, he named them both Adam. He named her Eve after the fall. Which to me speaks of the division that sin brings. It divides us from God and divides us from one another. When he first met her, he didn't have sin. He said, He received her completely as God's perfect gift. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. So we begin to label people. We begin to shirk our responsibility, and we see this in their children. They had two sons, Cain and Abel, and Cain killed Abel, and God asked Cain, where is your brother? And Cain shirked responsibility and said, am I my brother's keeper? what sin does and creates an inability to save ourselves sin is so divisive the results of our iniquity our inward wickedness is so insidious we cannot redeem ourselves ultimately our faith must be in the one who saves the redeeming remedy is our messiah jesus as our substitute he became an offering for us but taking upon himself all that sin had caused us to become He received it and turned it around. He was totally shamed on the cross. And yet in so doing, he put the devil to an open shame. In Hebrews 12, verse 2, it says, We're to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. On the cross he took our sin and our shame, and he despised the shame. The word despise... It's a Greek word, kataphroneo. It means to despise, to disdain, to think little or nothing of, to think against or to disesteem. He received the shame and did not regard it as something to resist. He went ahead and received it. He didn't hide from our need. He could have called angels to come and set him free, and he didn't do it. He covered us, but not himself. He was naked on the cross so that we could be covered by his perfect life. He received false blames silently. Died on a cross that should have been for a criminal named Barabbas. He allowed himself to be mocked, to be labeled They put a sign over his head, King of the Jews, while he's dying, to mock him, falsely labeling him. He wasn't just the King of the Jews. He was King of the world. He took full responsibility for our sins. He did not shirk responsibility. He took it all upon himself. And he did not use his ability to save himself. He had the ability to save himself. We don't. And he didn't use it. So that we could receive his ability to be saved. He did that for us. He took care of sin's causes. In Genesis chapter 3, you see sin's curses. They were separated from God, driven from the garden, not allowed to return. They were naked. They lost the covering of the glory of God that they had in the garden and had to begin to wear clothing. They would eventually return to dust. They had to sweat for a living. The earth bore thorns to them as a result of the curse of sin. We now have pain and sorrow in the world. Heaven's a place where there's no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. But because of sin in the earth, we have it. As a result of sin, now we have enmity with the enemy. They opened the door to the enemy to wreak havoc in the earth by exercising authority over us through the lies that people believe. But Christ took that curse upon himself that was caused by our sin. He was separated from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we could be united with God. He was naked on the cross so that we could be clothed with his righteousness in the world. He returned to the dust for three days from Friday to Sunday. He was in a borrowed tomb. He sweat as it were great. Drops of blood. Talk about blood, sweat, and tears. He received that for us. He was crowned with thorns. And I don't think it was just a wreath of thorns. I believe they took a thorn bush and fashioned a crown out of it and crammed the whole thing on his head. I mean, he was literally, his head was covered with thorns, taking on that part of the curse. He went through pain and sorrow for us so that we could be born again anew and receive the joy That is eternal. He bruised our enemy's head. That is, he took away his authority. And in so doing, his heel was bruised. Genesis 3.15 says that there would be a division between the seed of the woman and the seed of the devil. And her seed would bruise his head and he would bruise his heel. And hanging on the cross on three nails all the weight of his body was on those three nails and one heel. Fulfilling that prophecy from Genesis 3.15. Tell yourself, Jesus did this for us. So that through believing that he did this for us, we are filled with such appreciation. It begins to transform our lives. The antidote of sin is Jesus Christ. The word antidote is a substance that counteracts the effects of a toxin something that will take away or reduce the bad effects of something unpleasant or undesirable. Those of you that are in the medical field could explain this more better, but in some antidotes they make, they take the actual poison and shatter the cells that are in it and then inject that into the person who will develop immunities against the shattered cells, and forgive me if I'm not explaining it right, so that they can overcome the real thing. If you've been snake-bitten, there's antidotes made from snake venom where they develop something that will counteract that. Christ took the venom of sin upon himself without sinning so that through his blood we have the antidote for the poison of sin. Isaiah 53:11, He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. He satisfied justice. By his knowledge or by his experience, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressions. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He didn't say, Father, look at what they're doing. No, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Sin makes us blind. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age or this world knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Sin makes us stupid. And so the stupidity that sin creates is what caused them to want to destroy their Savior. But in so doing, they serve the purposes of God. God's able to take a card game and turn a winning hand into a losing hand, and a losing hand into a winning hand. He's a great transformer, able to turn things around. Welcome to the real shame-free zone. Can we say that together? Welcome to the real shame-free zone. From shame to songs. Isaiah 53 is, is followed by Isaiah 54. Say, Duh. And Isaiah 54 opens with these words. Sing, O barren, you who have not borne. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. This relates to shame, and I'll explain it to you in a minute. Shame is a negative emotion that combines feelings of dishonor, unworthiness, and embarrassment. It's a state of disgrace or dishonor. It's a cause for regret or disappointment. And following This awesome prophecy that only Christ could fulfill of Isaiah 53, the next chapter opens with these words, sing. It transitions from his suffering to the singing of a barren woman. Why does the prophet use this kind of language in talking about a barren woman? He's talking about much more than someone not having a physical child, eventually having a physical child. You see, in ancient cultures, having children is a sign of blessing. Children are a blessing from the Lord. Right? It's also a sign of prosperity because those children will grow up and you'll be able to work them, put them to work. So children were a sign of prosperity because they would eventually work for you. They were a sign of your future because your name would live on in them. And they were a sign of national security because if you kept your population numbers up, your enemies would not overwhelm you. Right? What's happening in Europe is pretty sad. About 50 years, unless God changes things, Europe will become Islamic simply by virtue of population numbers. Because of the influence of modern thinking, motherhood is not greatly respected in a lot of prosperous nations. It will be the downfall because the hand that rocks a cradle really does rock the world. Can we give a hand to all the mamas in the house? I have a friend that has five children, and she used to dread Mother's Day because they would stand her up as the mother with the most children, and then the pastor would say, my God, we're going to grow this church one way or the other. We're multiplying like rabbits. Never going to do that. Motherhood is something to hold your head high about. And if you're a mother who works outside the home, we applaud you. And if you're a mother that doesn't have to work outside the home, we applaud you. What we're seeing, the mockery done towards, I'm not a pro-Mormon politician guy, but the mockery his wife is receiving for never having had to work. I mean, she's not running for president, he is. He is. Raising stable children is a priority for us. And if you don't have to work, don't. Work in the home. I learned my lesson real quick in pastoring. You never ask a stay-at-home mother, do you work anywhere? No. You say, do you work outside the home? Because trust me, they work. They work. And if you're a stay-at-home mother, hopefully your husband doesn't have to go to work when he gets home. Some things are done around the house. Anyway, we'll leave that one alone. <laughs> Sing, old Baron. In the culture of this day, to be barren was an embarrassment. Your name wouldn't live on. Your prosperity would be limited. Women going down to the well to draw water. If one of them said, "I don't want to have any kids," they would shame them and say, "Are you crazy?" For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Through redemption, Christ takes our shame and makes it a song. Not to celebrate the wickedness that was in our past, but to celebrate the joy that he's done in our life. Our mess has become a message. Thank you, Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings, do not spare, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. He's able to take our shame, which disqualify us from every influence in anyone for good, and turns it into a song, takes our mess and turns it into a message, and we become an influencer of many for good. So you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Verse 4, do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Don't be afraid. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. That was another shameful thing. To be a widow without children, pretty rough. In Africa, they have what's called lobolo, where you give your in-laws some money for your wife or cows. And the purpose for that is if you die, they're going to have to take care of her, and they've got a means with which to do it. Some countries it's a lot of money. Other countries it's pretty attainable to pay lobolo for the right to marry someone's daughter. But the husband's family expects children from that woman, or they want their cows back. And so in church, if a young couple's not having kids, they're in every prayer line for healing. And God hears their cry. For your maker is your husband. If you're a widow, you have a husband. Your maker. He is your husband. He's not going to be. He is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. This word, Lord of hosts, sometimes we may just kind of glance over it. A host means a large number. He's the Lord of large numbers. He's the Lord of prosperity. He's the Lord of hosts of angels. And he is your husband. Yes, man, you are married to a rich man. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. Father, we thank you for fulfilling this promise and continuing to The lives of those who are tired of their shame, ready to be redeemed. Thank you, Lord. Welcome to the real shame-free zone. I shared a little bit of our story. 1977, moved with my parents and my brothers to Africa to establish a church in Zimbabwe, which was then Rhodesia. And after a year and a half, I was no longer a missionary. I had to come home because I got my girlfriend pregnant. Pregnancy is not a sin, but sin can make you pregnant. Our sin became obvious. We were busted. And so I had to come home and work outside the home. We started our family in Houston, Texas. And this man and this woman led a congregation in Houston at the time that was called the World of Faith International. Welcome to the World of Faith. It was an old-time Pentecostal church. They're a very loving couple. This is them at their 50th anniversary seven years ago, I guess. And they loved us. They accepted us. They restored us. And eventually, I went to work for the church after i graduated from bible school i applied for a license to preach from our denomination and they turned me down on my first attempt which kind of devastated me over a technicality but then the following year they gave me a license and and they knew all my stuff when i appeared before them to apply for permission to start a church they gave me permission in less than 30 minutes which they said was a record why is that because god restores He restores with the truth of what Jesus did, but he uses people, truth with skin on it, to bring restoration. And may God make us all like this couple, to take in people who are experiencing shame, to help them find their place in the Redeemer's family so that they can be freed from their shame and so that they can go on with their life for the future. This man passed away yesterday at the age of 80. Chuck Colson, he was described as the evil genius of the Nixon administration and spent the better part of a year in prison for a Watergate-related conviction. He basically lied, perjured. His proclamations following his release that he was a new man redeemed by his religious faith were met with more than skepticism but angered those who were still angry at the abuses he had perpetrated as one of Nixon's hatchet men. Charles Chuck Colson spent the next 35 years steadfast in his efforts to evangelize to a part of society scorned, just as he was. And he became known perhaps just as much for his efforts to minister to prison inmates as for his infamy in Watergate. He died Saturday at age 80. This is from an Atlanta newspaper. Colson once famously said he'd walk over his grandmother to get the president elected to a second term. In 1972, the Washington Post called him one of the most powerful presidential aides, variously described as a troubleshooter and as the master of dirty tricks. This guy had some shame. I shudder to think of what I'd been if I had not gone to prison, Colson said in 1993. Lying on the rotten floor of a cell, you have to know it's not prosperity or pleasure that's important, but the maturing of your soul. Colson pleaded guilty in '74. For obstruction of justice. Before Colson went to prison, he became a born again Christian, but the critics said his post scandal redemption was a ploy to get his sentence reduced. The Boston Globe wrote in 1973 if Colson can repent of his sins, there just has to be hope for everyone. Aren't you glad that's true? <laughs> Colson stayed with his faith after Watergate and went on to win praise, including the prestigious million-dollar Templeton Prize for progress in religion in his efforts to help others. And he gave that million dollars towards that effort. He created the Prison Fellowship Ministries in 1976 to minister to prisoners, ex-prisoners, and their families. It runs work release programs, marriage seminars, and classes to help prisoners after they get out. An international offshoot was established to minister in prisons around the world. He said in 2001, you can't leave a person in a steel cage and expect something good to come out of them when they are released. When he emerged from prison, he had a lot of offers to do other things that would make him a lot of money, but he wanted to serve people who had been forgotten in society. You see, his shame had been removed, and in its place was a heart to help people with shame. While faith was a large part of his message, he also tackled social problems like prison overpopulation and how the death penalty is imposed. Who was I to moralize or preach to others, Colson wrote. I botched it. I was one of those who helped people on the Watergate scandal and now in prison to prove it. Yet maybe that very fact could give me some insights that would help others. Royalties from all his books, as well as the million-dollar Templeton Prize he gave towards his efforts. He also wrote a syndicated column and shared his daily radio feature called Breakpoint, which was on more than a thousand radio networks. Who's heard Breakpoint? Powerful little broadcast. In February of '05, Colson was named one of Time Magazine's 25 most influential evangelicals in America. Time commended him for helping to define compassionate conservatism through his campaign for humane prison conditions and called him one of evangelicalism's more thoughtful public voices. Prison fellowship is possible only because its founder, Chuck Colson, was forced to personally identify with those people who had a special place in God's heart, prisoners and their families, and devoted his life so that when he sees the Lord, he would hear these words, I was in prison and you visited me. A testimony of a turnaround from shame to songs. Welcome to the shame-free zone. Three years ago, this July, we had a Sunday devoted We're a part of the worship service was devoted to cardboard testimonies where members of the church that wanted to voluntarily, they prepared themselves beforehand, came up with a piece of cardboard that had written on it their previous need before finding the Lord or a need they had while following the Lord or even the shame from their past. And they held it up for all to see. And then they turned it around, and there was a statement of how the Lord turned their shame into a song, their mess into a message, or their sickness into health, their need into provision. And we videotaped it. And in that service, those cardboard testimonies, so many people did it. It went on over 20 solid minutes of stories of redemption. I have two goals in preaching this little series on the real shame-free zone to reach the hearts of those that are living in shame so that they can have hope in the Redeemer. Like the Boston Globe said, if there's hope for Colson, there's hope for anyone. Hope for you and I. So that you can find that shame-free zone. But my second purpose in this series is I believe there's people in this church who have experienced freedom from their shame, but somehow there's still a residue left from the past that has silenced you and made you not very vocal on how the Lord has turned your life around. And I pray that his word during this short series so impacts you that you speak boldly where the Lord gives opportunity. Here's one of the three videos made from that day we had cardboard testimony. your hand on your heart and receive this blessing by faith. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May Almighty God cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the King of Heaven lift up His countenance upon you and give you His peace. And may His blood wash away all your shame so that you have many seed through your influence in the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.